Would you turn with me to the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament? While you're looking for that, let me try to bring you into the situation of Habakkuk so that uh, when we focus on its content, you'll know a little bit of the background. The situation is that the invasion of Judah, that is the southern kingdom, is imminent from the Chaldeans or another name for them, the Babylonians. The invasion eventually happened at the end of the 6th century B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar, with his forces, sacked Jerusalem in about 586 B.C. Before that happened, the Lord revealed to Habakkuk that, in fact, it was going to happen, that Judah would be punished for her sins by the invasion of the Chaldeans. And unlike Joel and Zephaniah and Amos, whom we have looked at before, nowhere in Habakkuk is there any mention of the possibility that judgment might be averted. Nowhere does he call for national repentance. It's too late. It is coming. That's it. All we can do, therefore, according to Habakkuk, is prepare ourselves as individuals to get ready for it. And the way he says that an individual can prepare to live in the judgment is by faith. So destruction is decreed and the hope of individuals is faith, but the nation as a whole is going to be blasted. Now, the full blown doctrine of justification by faith, which we're going to aim at, is not here yet in Habakkuk, but the seed is here. And so what I'd like to do is survey this prophet and then zero in on its main point, which I think is chapter two, verse four, and then let the little seed of the main point unfold for us into the New Testament flower. And that will be justification by faith, the greatest news in all the world. So turn with me to chapter one, verse one. After introducing the prophecy as a burden which the Lord has given to him, Habakkuk cries out in verses two through four that Judah is full of violence and perverted justice. For example, verse four. So the law is slacked and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. Now, Amos, you remember, had warned the northern kingdom, Israel, of those very sins that if they persisted in them, judgment would come and judgment came. In 722, Assyria cleaned house on the northern kingdom and it's gone. But it, Judah, evidently, just to the south, didn't go to school on that judgment. And 130 years or so later, they're trapped in the same kinds of sins. So what's going to happen? Verses 5 to 11 of chapter 1. God foretells what he intends to do. Verse 6. Lo, I am rousing the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize habitations, not their own. Notice, God wields the nations. Chaldea is the sword in the hand of the Lord. 
Chaldea is the rod of correction that he's going to bang against his people, Judah, for their sin. But an ameliorating word in verse 12. Habakkuk holds out hope that this is not the annihilation. It is only the chastisement. Art thou from art thou not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them as judgment and thou, O rock, hast established them for chastisement. So God is raising up the Chaldeans against his people, Judah, for their sin, but not for annihilation, but rather correction and chastisement. But in verses 13 to 17 now of chapter one, Habakkuk shows he's not at all satisfied with that because this nation of Chaldea are not such hotshots themselves. They are proud. Verse 11, they're violent. Verses 14 and 15, they're idolatrous. Verse 16, the Chaldeans themselves better not escape judgment or Habakkuk will be very indignant. Even though God's purpose is to use the Chaldeans to punish his own people. So he says in verse 17, what his complaint is, is he that is the Chaldean nation. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly slaying nations forever? That's the prophet's complaint to God. All right. Now, standing back from chapter one, what have we got? We have two protests or two complaints Habakkuk is not at all happy with the sins of the people in Judah, and he cries out against it. Okay, God says, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans against them and punish them. And then another protest. But wait a minute. The Chaldeans themselves are sinners. What about them? Chapter two, Habakkuk takes his stand to await the divine response to these protests. And in verses two and three, the Lord answers in a vision. Now, We're not told what he saw in the vision, but I assume that the rest of what he says about God's word to Judah and God's word concerning the Chaldeans is based on whatever it was he saw in this vision. And from there comes his confidence and certainty. So what does he say? Verse four, I think, is Habakkuk's word to the people in Judah. And I'm going to follow the New American Standard Bible instead of the RSV's Unnecessary conjecture here. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous or the just will live by his faith. So there is hope in spite of the Chaldean invasion and the massive destruction that's going to result. There's hope for people who trust. The just shall live by their faith. But what about the Chaldeans? What's the word to them in response to the protest? Verses 6 to 19 of chapter 2 show that it's a five-fold woe. Verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink up the cup of his wrath. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake and to a dumb thing, an idol, arise. 
In other words, the great power of the Chaldeans is going to come to naught. The nations weary themselves in vain to fill the earth with their fame. Why? Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord's glory is going to fill the earth, not the Chaldeans. So Habakkuk need not be overly exercised that because the Chaldeans are going to have the last say in Judah, that they'll have the last say in the world. And then he closes that chapter in verse 20 with what the choir saying. The Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him. In other words, let all the nations be still and know who is God. Not the glory of the Chaldeans will fill the world. The Lord's glory will fill the world. So. In answer to those two protests or complaints in chapter one, Habakkuk assures or God assures Habakkuk first that the Chaldeans will come to a woeful end. And that the people in Judah, if they will just humbly trust the Lord, will live. The just shall live by his faith. Now, the last chapter. The last chapter of Habakkuk is Habakkuk's response to God's promised action. And it's a a prayer of faith and praise. But it's not merely the personal word of Habakkuk. It's intended to be a, a psalm for worship in the church. There are three evidences of that in the chapter. First verse A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigiol note, whatever that is. That's a musical term, technical term to say this song or this prayer is to be accompanied by musical instruments with excitement and triumph. That's what that little phrase is intended to communicate. And then look at the very end of the chapter, the way it closes. There's a note there to Bruce Leafblatt to the choir master. With stringed instruments. In other words, don't just muddle along when you pray this. Play it with harp and violins, guitars. And then third, notice after verse 3, verse 9, and verse 13, you got that little word that you run into in the Psalms. Selah, selah, selah. Technical terms probably to indicate pauses or something like that. The point of all that now is this. When Habakkuk presents that to us in his prophecy, we're not supposed to say, oh, isn't he a nice, pious man to be able to pray like that? No, we're supposed to say, that's me there. That's the way I'm supposed to respond when judgment is coming. That's my expression of faith here in Habakkuk. The Chaldeans now are coming. Judgment is sure. The big question is, how do the people of the Lord prepare for judgment? Now, that ought to be our question, too, because Jesus said tribulation is coming upon the world. We'll come back to this at the end. This ought to be our question. How do we prepare for the calamities that are coming upon our lives 
for sure. Now, here's the answer from chapter three, verse two. Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard the report of thee and thy work, O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, renew it in the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Habakkuk has a very sober and healthy fear of the judgment of God. He does not play hanky panky with the judgment of almighty God. But he prays in your wrath. Have mercy on me and on the just who have faith so that they might live. Then in verses 3 to 15, he sings the greatness of God. And he recounts from the past and foresees in the future the greatness of God's salvation. For example, verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Thou didst crush the head of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So the prophet knew God's power from the past and he counted on it in the future that it would mean salvation even in the midst of wrath. As the Chaldeans come against the people. And so in verse 16, you have this beautiful expression of faith. He says that his body trembles when he thinks about judgment. But his soul waits quietly for what must be. And then the conclusion of the book, this great hymn of faith in verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree do not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, even if the Chaldeans utterly wipe us out, leave us nothing to eat, and take away all our animals from which we could make clothing and have food, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He makes me tread upon my high places. No matter how severe the tribulation, Habakkuk is going to keep trusting God. He is not going to quit on God because things look bleak. Even though God himself has raised up this hasty and bitter nation and sent it against Judah. He's going to believe him. He's going to rejoice in him. And he's confident that in wrath, God will show mercy. When a man and a woman marry. They ought to, if they don't. Pledge their love and their faithfulness. To one another for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. And if a husband and a wife ought to commit themselves to each other for better or for worse, how much more a man with his God, which is what? 
Habakkuk is doing here. That connection is so important to Noel and me. This was our wedding text 14 years ago. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. We are each other's no matter what. And we are God's no matter what. We trust each other. Absolutely. And we trust him. Absolutely. Now, step back from the survey. What's the main point of this book? I'd love we had time here to just let you tell me what you think the main point is. I'll tell you what I think the main point is. Negatively and positively. Negatively, the main point of this book is proud people whose strength or ingenuity is their God, come to a woeful end. Even though for a time it may look like they have the upper hand, conquering Judah or within Judah, ripping off the widows. But positively, the main point of this book is a positive point, namely, the just shall live by his faith. That's stated as a principle in chapter 2, verse 4. And then in chapter 3, verses 16 to 19, it's a confession of faith. The just shall live, shall gain their life. So when Habakkuk says, even when all the fruit and the produce and the flocks and the herds are destroyed and my very life is threatened, nevertheless, I will rejoice in my God. When he says that, he shows what he means by faith. Faith is banking all your hope on the goodness and the power of God, even when times look absolutely bleakest. That's the faith that gives life in the judgment day. Now, remember, Habakkuk began his book in chapter one by saying in Judah, the people were letting the law go slack. They were committing violence and strife and justice was perverted. So you might expect that when he came to say, here's how to gain your life, he might have said, cease being violent, do justice, put away strife. That's what Amos said. But he doesn't say that anywhere in this book. When judgment is certain, and the only question left is, how can you stand before the wrath of a holy God when it's coming? The answer of Habakkuk is, trust him for mercy in wrath. The just shall live by his faith. Now, Amos had said... Seek good and not evil that you may live. He had said, establish justice in the gate, and it may be that the Lord will be gracious to you. So Habakkuk could have said, couldn't he? The just shall live by his goodness. Or the just shall live because he establishes justice in the gate. I think he could have said that. And not have been a heretic. 
because it is a thoroughly biblical teaching that people whose everyday lives are not changed by the Holy Spirit will not inherit eternal life. No matter what they say with their lips, there is a real sense in which we do gain our lives by becoming, through the power of God, better people who do justice and love mercy. But that's not the heart of the gospel. And if we focus on that and forget the heart of the gospel, it will become for us a dreadful legalism and a horrid burden for the conscience, which Martin Luther struggled with something fierce. Habakkuk's message comes very close to the heart of the gospel. When he says, the just shall live by his faith, he implies two things. One is that all people who are righteous are people who trust God. You never have a person who is trusting in God who's not righteous. And you never have a person who's righteous who's not trusting in God. That's the first thing. And the second thing he implies is that faith is what saves in the judgment. When the Chaldeans come or at the end of the age when the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, the just shall live by his faith. Just people. This is what he means now, I think. Just people are people of faith and that faith secures their life. And keeps them safe for all eternity. The reason I say that Habakkuk only comes close to the heart of the gospel. He does not get to it. He does not make the heart of the gospel explicit. The reason I say that is because in Habakkuk, the relationship between righteousness that we must have to stand before God and faith is not stated. All Habakkuk says is righteous people have faith and that faith saves them. He doesn't say what the relationship is between the faith and the righteousness. But the heart of the gospel is that righteousness which God requires comes by faith. And it comes to sinners by faith because Jesus died for our sins. Here's the way Moses put it. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed, had faith. Abraham believed God and God reckoned it, his faith, to him for righteousness. That's the heart of the gospel. If we go on to include the New Testament message of how it is that God can do that for the ungodly, he can do it because our sins, which get taken away, were put on Jesus and he bore them for us. That's already seen in Isaiah 53, 11. It says, by his knowledge, speaking of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. There's the connection for us. Justification and Christ bearing our sin. So, when God reckons a person righteous, 
Because Christ died for his sin and he trusts in Christ, that's what we mean by justification by faith. And that is the heart of the gospel. The best news in all the world for anybody who knows that he's a sinner and that God is holy and cannot brook sin. But before we move out too far from Habakkuk, let me get us back in close to see something else. The judgment of God is coming, according to Habakkuk, most immediately in the Chaldean destruction, finally at the end of the age. What is it? This is this is the key question in Habakkuk. What is it that will bring life instead of death in the judgment? Now, I pause here. To make sure that everybody in this room, I hope if you've been reading or playing tic-tac-toe or something right now, you stop and listen. That is your question. Because if it's not, you're in a dream world. You are living in a fool's paradise of unreality if you do not ask with all your heart, how can I stand before the judgment of a holy God who cannot look upon sin. And the reason I say that's our question and not just Habakkuk's question, even though we're some 2,500 years later, is because the New Testament makes it crystal clear judgment awaits every individual in this room. For example, Hebrews 9. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. Or Romans chapter two, people who resist God are storing up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed from heaven. On that day, it will appear clearly to everybody how utterly naive many intellectual people have been in this world to think that the God who made this world for his glory will not call men to account for how little he has meant to them. That's naive. And it will appear naive to everyone, even if right now you are drunk with self-confidence. It squares with Scripture It squares with reason to use the words of Paul. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. Christ Jesus. Acts 17.31. It's your question, people. You must ask it. How can I, a sinner, stand before the judgment? If you die tonight, that's it. You stand before the judge in the great courtroom of the universe. There will be two verdicts, condemned or justified. It is the most important question you can ever ask. How can I get this verdict in the judgment? Justified, free, come on in. That's the most important question you can ever ask. Now, here's the answer from Habakkuk 2.4. Judgment is coming. The proud are in trouble. 
But the just shall live, shall gain their lives. How? What are the two words? By faith. Now, Habakkuk knew that everybody in Judah was a sinner. And he knew that holiness, God's holiness, prevents him from looking upon sin. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on wrong. So Habakkuk was sort of up against it. And all he could say was. Trust him. And you'll gain your life. He was not told by God how God could preserve his holy hatred for sin on the one hand and his zeal to show mercy to sinners forever and ever on the other. Habakkuk didn't know. But Paul knows because the Apostle Paul was told by God through Jesus Christ. And here's the word from Romans 3. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a expiation or propitiation or atoning sacrifice to be received by faith. It was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, treated them as if they weren't very significant. It was to prove that at the present time, God is righteous and justifies him who has faith in Jesus. And the two close in Jesus Christ. Paul shows us how. So let me translate this in conclusion into three statements and then make a brief comment about each one. When you in this room cease to rely on yourself, trying somehow to keep your conscience slaked before the almighty, holy God, trying to make your life meaningful on your own, trying to overcome your bad habits on your own. When you give up on all that and close with Jesus through faith, three things happen. Your sin receives its deserved condemnation. God's righteousness received its, receives its deserved glorification. And you receive your undeserved justification. Let me just make a comment about each of those. Folks, this is the best news in the world. This is the heart of the gospel. This is worth shouting about to everybody because everybody stands condemned before a holy God. Your sin receives its deserved condemnation. You may be drunk right now with self-confidence before the holiness of God. Not in the least worried. No skin off your nose. I don't know. I promise you, on your deathbed, you're going to sober up. You're going to be scared to death that in a few hours, you will stand before the God who made you for his glory and hear his sentence. 
Therefore, I beseech you before that day comes, settle it. God does not will to condemn you on that day. Jesus Christ is his yes to you. To be received by faith. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and condemned sin in the flesh. Your sin, when you close with Jesus, is condemned. It's over. All the punishment is done. Two thousand years ago, you're free. If you close with Christ, his death is your death. His righteousness is your righteousness. And the only verdict you will ever hear, no matter what you've ever done, is justified life, heaven. But it is not as though God was playing fast and loose with his own righteousness. If God's righteousness were not a concern to him, he could sweep your sin under the rug and say, oh, everybody, come on in. He cannot do it because of his righteousness. And therefore, he sends his own son to bear, to bear those sins, to bring together holiness and mercy in one great act of redemption on the cross. In a moral universe, there is no sweeping of sin under the rug. The sins you committed ten years ago are as vivid, as real, and as condemning as though you did them last night. For God is holy, and He will bring you to an account for those unless, and you all are nodding, those of you who are in the fold, unless there's an atonement. Unless somehow those sins could be borne by another. And he did it with Jesus. So those sins you did last night need not be on your shoulders this morning, nor forever and ever. And finally, not only when you close with Christ, do your sins receive their deserved condemnation. And not only does God's righteousness receive its deserved glorification, you receive your undeserved justification. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So Habakkuk taught us that when judgment comes, the just will live by faith. They're going to be saved by their faith. And when that little seed comes to full flower in the New Testament, we see that the reason the just will live in the judgment by their faith is because the just are just by their faith. And they can be just by their faith because Jesus Christ bore their sin 
So I close with this word from Romans 3, and it closes with an invitation. And I hope that you will hear it and heed it. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward to you to be received by 